important teaching in the Bible about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. This morning, I have two goals. Simply to teach that the church, that is every believer of Jesus Christ, must elevate its understanding of marriage above our cultures. We cannot be influenced by our friends, by our loved ones, even by some of the pastors who teach falsely or teach too lightly about marriage. We must elevate beyond our culture's teaching of marriage. The second thing I want us to do today is teach that we must begin to think biblically about our marriages. Picking up in verse 3, Jesus has finished his sayings, and the Pharisees come to him to test him. Let's read it, verse 3. It says, And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking this question, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together let not man separate. Let us pray. Father, you are the great creator. There is none like you, no one who creates. You call things that are not into existence and make them from nothing. You, Lord, have given us as a society a great gift. You have given us the gift of marriage. But today, Lord, our culture has perverted the church's thinking on marriage so that the church reflects more the culture than that the culture reflects the church. It is the very reverse of what you told us at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. We have allowed the darkness of the world to cover our light rather than being the guiding light to the world. We have lost our saltiness. Lord God, my concern this morning is not with the world. Father, the world has a greater need than that their marriages are failing. Their need is that their life has failed and that until they repent of their sins, they will not be forgiven. 
But Lord, the church cannot be a place where our marriages fail. We are to testify to the world by the light of the Spirit that the God who is our spouse is always faithful, will never leave nor forsake us. That in richer and in poorer, in sickness, in health, in good and in bad, Jesus, you will never leave us. Many of us have been affected by divorce. Jesus, if for anything, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would begin to move in the hearts of those who are divorced to know that you forgive them should they ask for it. That divorce is not the unforgivable sin. That you are willing to forgive today anyone who should come to your throne and ask for forgiveness. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would create that in the hearts of believers today. Those who have been divorced, repenting of their sins, and finding the peace of forgiveness that only you can give. Lord, there are some in our church today who are married, whose marriages are failing, who right now, Lord, are asking the very same question the Pharisees are asking. Do you permit divorce in any situation? Lord, correct that thought today. Correct the question. Give them a new question that they might ask you. How might my marriage reflect your marriage to me? How can my husbandry and my wifery reflect your love, your unyielding, faithful love for me, Jesus? That though I run after other gods and other lovers, Jesus, you never leave us. Jesus, let us be motivated by that this morning. I pray that for this church. Lord, there are single and unmarried people here today. I pray that they would not take lightly the marriage bond, but that they would think afresh about the relationship of marriage and exactly what that covenant means. A never-ending covenant is what your intent was. I pray that they would take seriously this thought. God, begin the revival in the church. Begin the revival in the homes. It is our goal here to build Christian homes. But Lord, so many of our homes need to be healed. Begin this morning, Holy Spirit, to convict hearts so that our homes might reflect your unyielding love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning's story reminds me of a story I once heard about a golfer named Lee Trevino and a hacker. A hacker is somebody who can't play golf very well. Like, uh, I don't know, Johan or Rudy. Jeez. I'm t or Dave, there we go, Dave. Johan, did I, did I see Johan get up and leave and Rudy? No. But a hacker is somebody who's not very good at golf. They're very good at golf, by the way. Not as good as me, but they're very good. 
And a hacker came up to Lee Trevino one time and he, he asked Lee Trevino a question. He says, how do you get your ball to spin backwards when it hits the green? The green is where the hole is. It's the soft putting surface. And he said, how do you get your ball to spin backwards when it hits the green? Any hacker who watches golf is very impressed when he sees the ball hit the green and it spin backwards. It takes a master golfer to do it to get it to spin a lot. They can get it to spin 10 to 15 feet back towards the pin. And it's beautiful. And this hacker says to Lee Trevino, he says, how do I get my ball to do that? And Lee, being the amusing person he was, ever humorous, looked at the man and said, well, let me ask you a question. How far do you hit your six iron? The man said, I hit my six iron about 150 yards. Lee laughed and said, well, I hit my six iron 190. Why would you want to spin your ball backwards? This morning's message reminds me of that story. The Pharisees, like us, sometimes need to rethink their questions. Because sometimes we ask the wrong questions. Sometimes what we really need to have is our entire view on things corrected. Not our questions answered. Our questions wouldn't be questions at all if our view of things was correct in the very first place. And this similar situation happened between Jesus and the Pharisees. The story goes, Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees and they ask him a question. Is it lawful to divorce your wife for any reason? And Jesus gives a more comprehensive view on divorce and remarriage. And that's found in Matthew 19, 3 through 12. That's why we've moved to this passage this morning rather than in Matthew 5, 31 and 32. And when the Pharisees approach Jesus in this passage this morning, their goal is to trap Jesus. Their goal is to get Jesus down into the culture and to ask Jesus to answer a question that was of great importance in that day. They want to bring Jesus and bring God's word down into the culture and get Jesus in the mud rather than Jesus being elevated above the culture and give the teaching they need to hear. In the first century... There were two rival Pharisaical schools. One was the school of Shammai, and the other was the school of Hillel. And they were teaching very two different things about the law, and in particular, they were teaching different things about divorce. Shammai, the more conservative of the two, taught that divorce was only permissible in the case of sexual immorality. Hillel, on the other hand, the more liberal teacher of the law, taught that divorce was permissible for almost any reason. Some examples given by Hillel were if a husband was no longer attracted to his wife, he could divorce her. Or if a man's wife perpetually burnt her husband's food, he could divorce her. And while the school of Shammai, the more conservative of the two, appears to be the more widely accepted school, unfortunately, and for obvious reasons, Hillel's teaching on divorce, the more lax teaching on divorce, 
was widely more popular. The first century Jewish historian, Josephus, who was himself a reluctant Pharisee, but a Pharisee nonetheless, says this about the thought process of divorce for the Jews in the first century. He that desires to be divorced from his wife, says Josephus, for any cause whatsoever, and many such causes happen among men. Let him in writing give assurance that he will never use her as his wife anymore. So what was going on in the first century was that the Jews, influenced by the Pharisaical school of Hillel, were teaching that a man could be divorced from his wife for any reason. You say, that's crazy. In fact, many of you just laughed when I said, if she burns the food too many times. But we're living in a day and age with no-fault divorce. And our culture is no different. In fact, all that needs to happen in our courtrooms today is for one spouse to simply say, I don't love him anymore. And the marriage is absolved. But what were they talking about? Why would they even think that God taught such a thing that anyone could divorce for any reason? It would be negligent on my part if I didn't show that in Deuteronomy 24.1, you might be surprised that there is an ambiguous teaching. In Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, it says this, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. The Pharisees took this passage, and they debated whether or not the phrase Anything indecent meant sexual indecency, Shammai, or any single thing that a man, according to his whim and according to his feelings, deemed was indecent. And Jesus is seeing this craziness going on, and he says, you're not going to pull me down there. We're not going to get into a discussion about your misreading of Scripture. You see, sinful people always take Scripture and distort it for their own evil devices. This is to follow their father, the devil. When Satan took Jesus into the, when, when the Holy Spirit took Jesus into the wilderness and Satan was there to tempt Jesus, Satan himself took the Bible. 
And he put it in his hand and he began to twist the scriptures and to teach lesser teachings about Jesus. But the believer always does what? Seeks to rightly divide the truth. As our Lord will do here. Jesus was not interested in answering their question, but rather in correcting their sinful view of marriage. What Jesus does here in this passage is undermines the pharisaical assumption that Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 is the chief biblical teaching on divorce. We're not so different from this, you know. We love whenever we want to find a sin that we love and we want to hold on to. We seek the scriptures to find if there's anything in there that God will permit us to continue and stay in that sin. Because we're asking the wrong question. We're seeking with an old heart and not a new heart. The old heart asks, what does God permit and the new heart asks, what is God's will? And Jesus speaks to this concern. Jesus is not concerned with the permissibility of divorce, even when they ask the question. And even when we begin this message and this sermon on divorce, we are not going to begin with the topic of divorce we are first going to follow our Lord's example and concern ourselves with the purpose of marriage. What does Jesus say? Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife? And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What they are talking, or what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus' response to Pharisees is, why are you even thinking about divorce? Why is this your passion? Why is this your concern, Pharisees? Why is this your concern, American Christian? What does God permit us to do in divorce? Jesus is concerned with God's purpose in marriage. Think about this for a moment. We're living in a day where no-fault divorce laws give men and women an opportunity to terminate their marriages for almost any reason. New Testament scholar Michael Green says this, What is manifest in this teaching is that Jesus, in principle, is against divorce and remarriage, and would even be appalled at the ease and frequency with which it takes place amongst us today. So let's follow Jesus then. Let's ask a new question from within the Christian worldview. Let's ask it this way. Is divorce God's intent for marriage? 
The question is altogether different from the question the Pharisees asked Jesus. Instead of looking for a way out, let us look to the very reason why we're here in the first place. Why has God given us marriage and why does he intend it to be forever? This is, after all, what Paul calls a profound mystery. What is this profound mystery? Namely, that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. He is unyieldingly faithful to his bride, the church. What does this therefore mean for our marriages? It means that we too must be unyieldingly faithful to our spouses. Let us contemplate the unyielding love of Christ and not answering the question of where God permits divorce. No matter how many times we run after other gods, no matter how many times we are unfaithful to him, no matter how many times we disappoint and hurt Jesus, no matter what we do, Christ is a faithful husband. You see, we're asking the wrong question. We're concerned with the wrong thing. Look to the Savior for your example in marriage. Second thing we need to do after we elevate ourselves beyond the question of the world, when are we permitted to divorce, is to think biblically now about our marriages. The prophet Malachi tells us that God hates Divorce. In our passage this morning, Jesus sidesteps the Pharisees' concern with divorce and he emphasizes God's intent that marriage is to be forever. Therefore, thinking biblically about divorce means that we search the scriptures looking for God's will of purpose for marriage, not his permissions for divorce. Here's what I am asking all of us to do. Single, married, divorced and remarried, divorced and unmarried, search the scriptures, not the Facebook feed. It doesn't matter what the world says. The world is not your Lord. The world doesn't own you, but Jesus does. In life and in death. Today, the wedding, the marriage and wedding industry is a $50 billion a year industry. $50 billion. We spend months, sometimes years, planning our wedding parties to make sure that they're just right. 
We spend thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars that most of us don't have on undercooked food. Who eats wedding food? I learned something. Stephanie, she's brought her small purse, but we bought Stephanie big purses so that when we have to go to weddings and your drunk uncle gets up and gives a speech for 45 minutes, I've got a sandwich, a turkey sandwich, shoved down in that large bag so that I don't have to listen to it. You all know what I'm talking about. As if those mints on the table are getting you hungry. But we waste our money on a party. You say, didn't you have a big party? I did. I did. And I'm not against having a party. Understand what I'm saying? I'm not against having a party. What I'm against is when we spend months and years planning a day and no time planning a lifetime of marriage. That is my concern. Have your parties. Serve wine or don't serve wine, depending on whether you're Baptist or Presbyterian or whether you're going to have your Irish in-laws there. They would have just left if we didn't have Heineken. At least that's what I told my dad. Have your parties. But we've got the emphasis on the wrong syllable. I'd much rather you spend months with your pastor. How can I safeguard my marriage? Because Jesus teaches us that what God has joined together, no man should separate. And church, I'm no good to you if I get up here and I don't talk about what Scripture talks about. I'm not your pastor if I can't do that. There's a lot of pastors today who on this very topic are going to try and fill pews with popular things. I'd rather your marriages last. If you walk out this door hating me today after what I preach and your marriage lasts, success. We spend so much time planning a day and almost no time planning a lifetime of marriage. But we must plan our marriages and more specifically plan our marriages according to God's word. First off, we have to see that God has designed marriage to be lifelong. Look at the verse again. Have you not read? He knows the Pharisees have read. But what they were reading is the verse that condoned divorce and not the verse that showed Jesus's purpose in marriage. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? God's creation of men and women very, at the very base presupposes the one flesh union. Physically, emotionally, man and woman are made for each other. This is the chief teaching on marriage. Not passages about divorce. Not passages about fornication. Not passages about sexual immorality or homosexuality. 
The chief passage is what does God desire for his people? And when he created them, he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and cleave to his wife. The structure of a godly society is to move from underneath one faithful marriage into another. The man sees his parents live their faithful marriage and he leaves that marriage and he goes into the next. And I know that so many of us don't come from that. But show me the grace to desire something greater for our church. The two will become one flesh. There is in marriage, so to speak, a creation of one new person out of two. A new human being is formed. They are no longer two, says Jesus, but one flesh. The husband does not live to himself, man. You don't live to yourself. Wife, you don't live to yourself. But the two are one. And no man would ever mistreat his own body. How then can he mistreat his wife? No woman would ever mistreat her own body. How then mistreat her own husband? Because the two are mysteriously joined to be one. What therefore God has joined together. Let not man separate. So that divorce is, so to speak, the killing of the one flesh union. This is serious business. John Stott says, one must never begin a discussion on the subject by inquiring about the legitimacy of divorce. To be preoccupied with the grounds for divorce is to be guilty of the very Pharisaism which Jesus here in this passage condemns. When Jesus was pushed on whether or not God permitted divorce for any and every reason, he did not first talk about divorce, but instead spoke first about the unbreakable covenant that God has joined together and that no man has the right to divide, not even a husband and a wife. Amen. Whether you're single or married, Divorced or remarried, take marriage deathly serious. The fact is God has intended to permanently join two persons into one. The second thing we have to know is that God's faithfulness to us should be our guiding precept in marriage. Ephesians 5.32 tells us that marriage is a profound mystery. We just talked about this. And it most closely resembles the way Christ relates to his people. When, when Paul began to outline what a Christian marriage should look like, he began to interweave the way that Christ relates to his church. And he called this relationship between Christ and the church a profound mystery. I don't know exactly what the profound mystery is, but I suspect that it's this. The Greek word there for profound is the word megas. 
from which we get our word mega. In other words, marriage is a big deal. It's a mega deal. Why? Because you are pledging to become one flesh out of two. To forsake your rights and your own desires for your spouses. Not only when it's good. Not only when you're rich. And not only when you're healthy. But to be there in the bad times too. When the money's gone. And when your health is fading. Thank you God. That I've seen a father. Stay with my mother as she struggled with her sickness. Thank you God. That I've seen a mother stay with a father in his sickness. Thank you for letting me see the mystery of contentment when they were healthy, wealthy, and wise. And the even greater mystery that you keep them together when they're poor and unhealthy and dying. What a testimony it is. What is this profound mystery? It is, I suspect, the unswerving faithfulness of Christ to his bride. Paul in Romans 8.35 says this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Instead of reading 1 Corinthians 13 in our weddings, let us read this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation? No. Distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. Nothing. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will, a will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the mystery. That we are connected to Jesus forever. Can't we be connected to our spouses in the same way? This is my appeal this morning. John Stott says again, it's not of great significance. He says, is it not of great significance that the divine lover, that is God, was willing to woo back even an adulterous wife? Whether you're single or married, divorced or remarried, take seriously the fact that the type of unswervingly faithful spouse we are wed to is our God, Jesus Christ. Listen to what Isaiah 54, 5 says, 5 through 8. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth, he is called for the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off. Think about when Jesus calls us. We're not even a very attractive bride. People ask me all the time, well, what about marrying someone who's, who you're not attracted to? I heard the craziest story this past week. Ravi Zacharias was telling a story of his brother who was in an arranged marriage. And asked for the arranged marriage. This was a man who was very well educated. And he said, you can't, Robbie said to his brother, you can't do this. His brother said, listen, 
Marriage and love is not about emotion. It's about a will. And whoever this woman is, I, in the Lord's power, he said, will will to love her. Think about what God has done. You are a deserted wife. There's nothing unlovely in you when God called you to be his bride. There was nothing lovely about you. You weren't dressed in fine things. You were broken. You were sinful. You were rebellious. And Jesus said, that's my girl. For a brief moment, I deserted you, but with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. My challenge to you, church, is this. Michael Green says it best. He says, one of the most powerful Christian witnesses possible these days is the eloquent example of a warm, forgiving, hospitable, united, and happy Christian home. It's the best witness we can give. My father taught me the theology of great thinkers. My mother and father led me to Christ, sitting on my couch at the age of nine. But what better testimony of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ that that through sickness and health, only death will tear their relationship asunder. Therefore, as we contemplate Christ's faithfulness to us this morning, think about how we might be faithful even in the midst of great marital suffering. I understand what I just asked. Think about how Christ is faithful even in the midst of great suffering for us. Contemplate how we can testify to the world to the faithfulness of Christ by remaining faithful in our marriages. Notice that I've said very little this morning about legitimate divorce. And I do believe that the Bible does permit legitimate divorce in at least two or maybe even one more situation. We'll talk about that. This morning, it is essential that we grasp the purpose for marriage. I would much rather appeal to you this morning to embrace long-suffering as a spouse in honor of Jesus Christ's long-suffering with us than before I give you reasons for divorce. Consider these final words by John Piper. Pain-free marriages are assumed by all of us as a right. We all assume that our marriage will be pain-free. Don't be so foolish. When you stand at this altar, it's one sinner marrying another. He's going to fail. She's going to fail. But you make a covenant with God. Listen to what Pastor Piper says. Pain-free marriages are assumed as a right. 
But God promises his people something far better than pain-free marriages. Blessed is the man who endures trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let's pray. Lord, I don't suspect that this teaching was very easy this morning. Because, Lord, you taught it to me first. Lord, this week, I searched your word and considered the difficulty, Lord, of a strong and long marriage. But Lord, I pray that you would mold hearts this morning to love and to accept the commitment that they made. Lord, to those who are single, that they would accept the commitment of marriage. Lord, to those who are divorced, that they would receive the forgiveness that only you will grant them. For them to know that This is not a perpetual sin, divorce. But that if we come to you and we say, Lord, we've sinned. You are faithful and just and will forgive us. But Lord, let us go from this point on. From this day. And build marriages according to your purpose. Thank you, God. Amen. Church, as we prepare for our baptismal service, would you please stand as we sing together, Go Tell It on the Mountain. <laughs> 